what was it like going forward on your book as the political landscape was, I don't know, it feels like the walls closing in on people. It became just more and more urgent to get the book out, to keep working on it, to include the right amount of artists and thinkers and lawyers and practitioners and activists. On so many fronts, right? We were just feeling like there's, we were seeing the threats and further escalation of limiting people who can become pregnant's access to abortion and reproductive health care, the acceleration of surveillance, and then selectively unseeing people's needs. Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio, joined today by my amazing co-host. Hi, this is Lorinda Blaisdell. Welcome back to episode two of season four of Red Cloaks Radio. Can't quite believe we're at the fourth season. It's like the need for feminism hasn't gone away yet. What's that about? It's only increased the past year for sure. It's May and certainly on the calendar, Mother's Day pops out as a very significant if invented holiday. And it's a perfect theme for today's guest. We are back again with Sophie Hamaker, Jessica Hankey, and Catherine LeCombe. The book is Supervision on Motherhood and Surveillance. And it is a multimedia book, which is definitely made for these times. Hi, everyone. It's so good to see you back again. Hi. So happy to be here. (laughs) So we were talking in our last episode so much about this theme of collaboration. And there's, I want to go talk about that more, but I also want to talk about the individualism. I'm curious, Sophie, how did you pick which of your own works to include in the book? Because that has to be a process. And I'm curious how you made that decision. So um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the work that I was doing. So some of the thinking that I was doing before I submitted to Jessica's open call um, was really these making these simple experiments with baby monitors. So using a baby monitor as a film camera kind of, so filming everything but the baby. And I was also during that time, I had this infant and I was walking the streets of New York City and I was... I was interested in screens and I was interested in somehow documenting these walks to use as kind of future material. I wanted to somehow be productive in my in my uh, coming to terms with my own motherhood. So the stills from these first video experiments, baby monitor experiments, those became the material for the first visual essay. Uh, There's four of my visual essays included in the book. Their titles are film stills, biometrics, drawing on the history of gestation and hands and body parts. And each one of these visual essays became kind of one avenue of thinking through the subject of motherhood and surveillance. They were all really made alongside of my research for the book um, and also really went hand in hand with a work on the on writing the preface for the book. And Jessica, Sophie just mentioned you put out sort of an open call. How did you frame that? Because you drew in such amazing, powerful work. The answer, and I guess this is a like, I, I say this as encouragement to everyone out there who wants to do something. I had just moved to Portland, Maine, and the Warhol Foundation has a regranting network where they have picked maybe 28 cities across the US and they pick an institution in that city and give them money and ask them to redistribute the money. And so in Portland, Maine, it's through Space Gallery where our party on May 19th is happening. 
But um, and in Boston, for those out there, it's through the Tufts Art Galleries and it's called Collective Futures. Anyways, it was like, here's, you can get $5,000, propose something. So I proposed to them that I would start the small press and Sophie's, and I would do an open call because I really believe in making opportunities accessible to artists and breaking a little bit out of the, you know, you have to know someone kind of networks. So Sophie, um, I sent out an announcement and Sophie was one of the people I sent the announcement to. And when I saw her proposal, I thought it was amazing and super promising. You talked about um, not the minutiae, but like, I don't know, the painful aspect of mothering if you have not had a baby before and you have a baby and you suddenly are not free. You can't do what you were doing before. And I'm thinking that as you were working on this book, um, clearly it's at a time, the literal elephant in the room, politically speaking, you know, has been making it more and more likely that people will be absolutely forced into mothering, forced into it. So they can be raped and then not allowed to have an abortion. They have to stay pregnant. And at the other end of that is they have to either give away their child or they have to mother or otherwise parent based on their gender, they have to take care of that child. So I'm wondering, what was it like going forward on your book as the political landscape was, I don't know, it feels like the wall's closing in on people. It became just more and more urgent to get the book out, to keep working on it, to, to include the right amount of artists and thinkers and lawyers and practitioners and activists. It, yeah, it was really, it became really urgent and there was more and more um, literature coming out about motherhood and mothering and um, I'm glad that it's finally out. Yeah. And in the book, Jessica, you talk also, I think you both do, but you definitely talk about also happening during the period you're making the book is the exposure of conditions for children and parents at the southern border of America and the conditions there. Um, you point out that it's like the one place where then there isn't surveillance, where we don't have the opportunity to see how people are being treated or mistreated. What was driving you, again, connecting sort of the current events of the past few years with the project? Well, I think another theme that really emerged that I don't know if we were necessarily expecting it is this relationship between hypervisibility and selective invisibility within the logics of the surveillance state, right? So the children along the southern border are selectively made invisible because, and they're actually, and, the, and you know, in the, I don't know if you guys remember this, but their, their claim, their reason for barring cameras inside of these detention centers was to protect the privacy of the children, right? Uh, but instead, it's actually like their needs, the neglect, which we know was terrible, was just being systematically unseen and erased. And at the same time that that was happening, we had some of the logics of the pandemic, which were accelerating bringing surveillance into the home, like through Google Classroom, right? And we saw children actually get in trouble for what was seen in the background of their screens during Google Classroom. Um, I think Google, Classroom also got in trouble a couple of years ago for gathering data from kids to use and sell, like spying on kids. So we were, what Sophie's saying about the urgency, it's like just on so many fronts, right? We were just feeling like there's, we were seeing the threats and further escalation of limiting people who can become pregnant's access 
to abortion and reproductive health care, the acceleration of surveillance, and then selectively unseeing people's needs. Does that answer your question? It does. I'm sorry. I'm just I'm so mad when I think about these past few years. For the Red Cloaks, our theme at the, the border issue was a series of tableau around don't look away. And I think it ties right back into your 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 heightened awareness and the way you open it up for us through the book to think about looking and not looking specifically at motherhood. I think it's it's not work that I've really seen done at this level of detail. I've seen individual artists. You have a couple in the book. Um who I've seen before, but I got to see so many more people. And I hope listeners can understand. This is like, Learned and I were saying before we before we uh, started chatting with you, it's not like a coffee table book. It is a beautiful book. So it would look great on your coffee table. I know for me, I bought it for myself for Mother's Day, but if you haven't bought a Mother's Day present, um, or if you hear this after Mother's Day, it's a great gift for the thinking person. <laughs> And the book itself, though, when you go through it, for me, it was much more like walking through my favorite galleries, or I'm a big fan of the Museum of Modern Art and the new museum in New York. It's like walking through those spaces with people. So if you find yourself in a position of going through art spaces and you don't have um, friends who share that passion, pick up this book because you can find yourself in an intellectual dialogue that is, as you can hear, very deep. It's touching on the issues of our times. Things have only gotten worse now with the Dobbs decision. Um, for some people, they were obviously terrible, but there's no question that this isn't a worse level. How does it drive you as you think about the launching of the book and the way you structure your events? It seems like you're connecting it very directly because you're you're using your book launch to promote access. Exactly. Um, I, I mean, I think that was that was the reason for kind of making the book launch much larger than the book itself. So con basically continuing the work of collaboration outside of the outside of the pages of the book, the, the actual pages of the book and continuing the collaboration and coalition building to, to include to include these ab abortion providers, to include artists, younger, younger artists who are working on uh, subjects in these areas. Um, Jessica, what do you think? I think we really, we asked ourselves, we know we have to do a launch for the book and we want it to be something that feels really worth our time and meaningful. And what would we be willing to make sacrifices around to really make this, make these like important fun events. And we felt like reproductive healthcare, abortion rights, we are ready to get to work, make calls and fight for that. But we also really wanted to uh, use the events to we wanted to center reproductive health care and abortion in a way that doesn't stigmatize abortion as, you know, like a choice of last resort. We wanted these to be empowering, recharging events, which, right, Viva Ruiz and the project Thank God for Abortion um, will certainly bring some of that energy to the events. And we applied for a grant to make it possible to bring her from New York. So we really just sort of like started getting our ducks in a row thinking, oh, you know, this is an opportunity. How can we use it and just keep expanding? We want to go back for the book details, which Lorinda will ask you about. But I want to go to Catherine thinking about Viva Ruiz um, and 
Catherine and the different artists connected through the book and now making that circle bigger through the events leading up to this art project. Catherine, in our earlier episode, you mentioned that you hadn't even done silk screening before, but you're ready to dive in and do that. And I'm curious about, again, against the landscape that we're in right now, what is making you decide to use your artistic talents in this way and your energy? Yeah, um, so after you know, being put in touch um, with Jessica and learning more about um, the Boston-based event, I really wanted to become involved because my work uh, is based on my personal experience with miscarriage, but also now um, how that's being affected by the post-ops decision and how women in restrictive states are being denied care um, as doctors and um, hospitals are afraid of running afoul of abortion bans. That is extremely um, compelling. I don't wanna glance over that you just shared something really important, which is you've experienced miscarriage. And that is something that many people have. And it's not something that just comes up in conversation all the time. So it's it's very moving that you're processing this. And I'm curious about how the art is helping you or the art community. Yeah, so I began this um, body of work, uh, which I titled Collateral Damage the beginning of this year in my last year of graduate school. And uh, it started off with me sharing my personal experience with miscarriage, but then it really evolved as I did more research um, and as the post-ops decision came out. And I discovered that women uh, who were spontaneously miscarrying were really suffering uh, due to the lack of um, necessary care, like being denied by hospitals. And some of the research I found, I actually discovered that a woman in Texas had endured days of excruciating pain in a bathtub full of blood after being refused care at a hospital. And a Missouri woman was refused the medication she needed to safely pass her miscarriage by a pharmacist. And even now, medical students uh, in restrictive states are learning to perform the surgical removal procedures on papayas because they're being denied access to live patients. And so the procedure to end a miscarriage is the same as an abortion. And now the, the I think that women are now the collateral damage in this gray area that wasn't considered before. And it's all, it's just very cruel and incomprehensible to me. It's part of the not talking about it and the not seeing and the not being seen because for so many pregnant people when they've miscarried, it's it happens at home or it happens where there's someone and then they get somewhere private and they don't talk about it. And there's social taboos, there's a desire to protect your privacy, but you're right, the surveillance state, I think Sophie and Jessica, you would say, the surveillance state around miscarriage and now abortion that, over, that overlap for need for care it puts people in a really extra dangerous emotionally and physical position. Is that an area that you were able to explore or that you're seeing other artists exploring? You know, I think that the amount of work that's being made related to reproductive rights is increasing exponentially. At first, when we were looking for work to include in the book, we had kind of a difficult time finding work that talks about abortion and reproductive health care in an open-ended or exploratory, not just educational way, but just from the little bit of outreach that we started doing for the event to work with students, we've already landed on two students that are making really interesting work about abortion. One is Catherine and the other is Delaney, who I think Catherine mentioned in part one of the episode. But um, 
So I think there's going to be a lot more work talking about all of these different nuances around bodily autonomy and what the impact is when it's taken away. I'm so glad you're doing it, Catherine. I think it's, it is an area where I haven't seen a lot and yet it's so many people who experience miscarriage and often they can't speak about it with a partner or even friends or even their family. It, it's, it can be extremely isolating. So art opens the doors, doesn't it? It definitely does. I mean, over 1 million miscarriages happen in a year in the U.S. Um, and that's that's a huge number. So yeah, there definitely isn't enough conversation around it. So I'm happy uh, that I have art and photography to start generating those conversations. And that leads exactly to the book launch, which is where we want to go and be able to build out these connections. We want to make sure we pull out all the details for people on where and when they can come and meet you and get the book. And to meet one another in person, right? If we can, for those of us that can. And we're really hoping that new networks and coalitions will emerge out of the launches. That's one of the reasons why we're doing the silk screening with the students from different schools is we really hope that they can continue to work together. We can work with them. The conversation continues. So May 18th, Shevu Roller Rink. If you haven't been there, it's a super cool 90-year-old uh, roller skating rink that is a Black-owned business. And our event is from 7 to 10 p.m. I think, Jesse, you guys will be able to put a link right on your site for people to buy tickets. If you can't attend, you can still support and get a ticket and we'll send you some merch that's being made by these students. You can see more info about it there. And you'll be able to see a performance from Viva Ruiz and the project, Thank God for Abortion, which is an artistic practice. It's important to establish that Viva is this incredibly significant world-famous artist making work about abortion rights. And, um, and we'll have a DJ. And then the following night in Portland, Maine, there will be a book talk and a dance party with three different DJs and a performance from Viva and more merch made by students at Mecca who are in a group called Noise Collective. And again, the celebration will continue. That's all happening at Space Gallery, which is like a very important hub for arts and culture in Portland. And we'll put a link to that also on the Red Cloak site. Before we end, I just wanted to add though that people, listeners can see Catherine's work at MassArt Exoa Gallery, which is in that gallery complex in Soa off of Harrison Street. The opening is May 5th, but it'll be up until when, Catherine? Up until May 14th. Mm -hmm. Excellent. That's great. So we want to thank you definitely for, for coming and sharing your information on your book. The book is Supervision on Motherhood and Surveillance. Everyone, please order your copy. It is a great book. And also please come out or support the, the book launch as well in the coming events. I'm planning to be there, though I'm not planning to be in roller skates. So we want to just remind people, you can come out. You don't have to roller skate. <laughs> um, are you guys all going to be on wheels? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely going to take a turn around the rink a few times, uh, but I'll probably be stand up, like behind a table with all of the merch for a lot of it but I'm looking forward to getting some skating and I'm not a good roller skater. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to be on wheels as well. We'll see, it's been a lot of years, so I probably will be on butt more than wheels. <laughs> I've invited a lot of people from Boston's roller derby, so I think there'll be a lot of good skaters out there to help people. 
<laughs> if you fall, people to just lift you right up. Is that a good metaphor for what we need right now? Love it. It's perfect. Yeah. If you fall, we're going to lift each other up. That is the art of collaboration. Listeners, make sure to go to bostonredcloaks.com for links. You can find them on our Facebook page and on our Instagram page, also on Twitter. We want to thank you so much for being with us. It's been great to have this conversation. Thank you so much, Jesse and Lorinda. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio, a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Find us at bostonredcloaks.com 